Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. Welcome back to the Investor Coaching Show. I'm Evan Barnard here with Ira Work. And uh, Ira, we were, you know, we were talking about inherited IRAs, but you've got something on inheriting houses. Yeah, this was really interesting. Um, and it, it kind of hits home to me personally, because unbeknownst to me, about five or six years ago, uh, my mom went, I guess, to some dinner meeting and learned about um, how to protect her home in the event she had to go into a nursing home. Yeah. Uh, because um, you know, she wanted to make sure that she had something to leave to us kids. So I came across this article, what's the best way for kids to inherit their parents' home? The question is, friends of mine put their two children on the title of their house some time ago. The house has no mortgage. The father is now deceased and the mother is now 85 years old. When the mother dies, the children will become owners of the house. However, I think that they will also inherit their parents' basis in the house. There will be no step up to current market value. Am I correct in advising the mother to get the kids off the title as soon as possible? Mm, okay. So as an enrolled agent, <laughs> what would you say to that before I continue? I would say I'll check. <laughs> I'll look it up. All right. So the answer... Let's get some of the facts and terminology correct. When you say that your friends put their children on the title to their home, do you mean that the parents no longer had an ownership interest in the home and only the kids were owners? And there's a lot that goes into this, that stuff I hadn't thought of. Yeah. Or do you mean that the kids and the, the parents and the kids were all on the title to the home? Many folks believe it's a good idea to add their children to the title of their home. Now, my mom... What she did was she did a quit claim and just gave her house to the four of us equally. While she's still living. Uh-huh. Okay. She didn't know that we inherited <laughs> their, their cost basis. Okay, yeah. Their thinking is they would own the home with the kids as joint tenants with rights of survivorship. In your example, if they did it this way, when the father died, the mother and her two kids would have joint would have been joint owners. Down the line, when the mother dies, the kids would become joint owners of the home. But you have to answer this question. Who has taken the benefits of owning a home? Okay. Presumably the father and the mother took deductions of any interest payments made on any loans on the home. And we assume they deducted the real estate taxes on their income tax return. And some might say that the parents had all the benefits of ownership and the kids were merely on the title for convenience purposes. We've heard from readers who say that the Internal Revenue Service would allow the parents to be considered the sole owners of the home while they are alive. The kids would be considered the owners of the home once the parents passed. Maybe. <laughs> we aren't 100% comfortable with that statement, the article says. And here's why. Let's say the parents purchased the home many years ago for $50,000. Right. When dad died... The house was worth $400,000. When mom dies, a few years later, the house is now worth $500,000. Okay. We'll ignore any improvements the parents 
made to the home or any cost of purchasing or selling the home. And we'll also assume they were the only owners of the home. When you sell a home, the IRS typically wants you to pay taxes on the profits of the sale. At a very basic level, if you buy it for fifty and sell it for five hundred, you realize a four hundred fifty thousand dollar profit. Mm-hmm. The IRS allows an individual to exclude up to two hundred and fifty thousand of profit, up to five hundred thousand for a married couple filing jointly. Mm-hmm. Realize from the sale of the home from federal taxes. But you must have lived in the home as your primary residence for two out of the last five years. In this scenario, both owners died without selling and receiving the benefit of the exclusion. Yep. Now, when the father died, the mom would have inherited the father's share of the home. Mm-hmm. The father purchased his share for twenty-five thousand. Right. So hers is one seventy-five, or one half of the fifty thousand. Yep. He transferred his share to the wife with a, at a basis of $200,000 or one half of the $400,000. The home was worth on the day he died. Let's say that when mother dies, the house is now valued at $500,000. Here's where it gets interesting. <laughs> After the father died, the mother inherited the father's share of the home valued at $200,000. When the mom dies, her share would be worth two hundred and fifty, half of the assumed $500,000 value. If the mom were selling the home, her profit would be $50,000 on the father's share of the, of the home and $200,000 on her share of the home. But if she had sold the home before she died, she would exclude the tax from the whole amount as she would be allowed to exclude up to 250000 in taxes from the IRS. Now we come to the kids. If, we simply, if they simply inherited the home at the time the mother dies, they inherit a house at $500,000. If they turn around and sell the home shortly after the mom dies, there's no profit. Right. Why? The inherited home valued at five hundred and sold for five hundred. That's how the stepped-up basis works. Yeah. The IRS and tax practitioners will refer to the cost of the home as the basis and include the amount that was paid for the home plus cost to purchase, sell, improvements, and so forth over the years. And there's a publication 523. Generally, when parents put their kids on the title of the home, the kids stand in the shoes of their parents. That means the kids might not get the advantage of the stepped-up basis yeah, because they are already on the title. And basically, they would have a tax consequence. And all of this to point out that it's not cut and dry. Right. It's a very complicated thing. And you need, you know, the advice here would, would, was to seek an estate planning attorney oh, who sure. can help you weave through all of this um, and speak to, you know, a guy like Evan, an enrolled agent who knows where to look for all of this information. But the estate attorney might be able to position it in such a way and prove that it was not actually ownership of the house. It was really more for the convenience of making it easy to transfer. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting how many things that you think would be cut and dry, just really get messy in a hurry and separate from the inter- the tax conversation 
in the estate planning conversation, uh, you know, because we talk with clients about, uh, they'll ask the question, should I put my child on the house? Yeah, I hear that question. And, you know, you know, so I'm, I'm not an attorney. None of us are, except for Ann. But one of the things that I caution them about is you know, if they're on the title of the house and, you know, if that's a parent, let's say their kid now is 35 and that 35-year-old has a 17-year-old and the 17-year-old does something crazy at a party, is a new driver, hits the neighbor's prize pit bull and, you know, poodle, whatever, and they get sued, all of a sudden, mom and dad could have that house potentially attached Mm -hmm. in a lawsuit. And, you know, they have no home to live in. And, you know, so there's all those things to consider. You don't want to just, you know, willy-nilly add people to accounts. You really want to have some strong reasons and get some some professional advice in going through that. Um, wanted to read a uh, quick article, excuse me, from Jason Zweig, who is a, a writer that we like quite a bit. And I wondered why he hadn't <laughs> been post in publishing anything. Uh, it was titled, What I Learned When I Stopped Watching the Stock Market. Uh, and actually, just looking at this, I will actually read this when we come back from the break. We'll take a uh, quick break. Uh, you're listening to the Investor Coaching Show on Super Talk 99.7 WTN. Thanks for tuning in to the Investor Coaching Podcast. Now, you may be one of these people that's been listening and realizing, wow, investing, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye and financial planning, tax laws constantly changing and recognizing that maybe you might need some help in this area, but you don't want just anybody to help you out. So we have 10 offices in the Middle Tennessee area, and everything we do is fee only. We align our interests with your interests. So you can get an initial 15-minute phone call with any one of our offices just by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. That's it. Every one of the offices is run by somebody with 20 plus years experience. They're all degree planners. They all have academic backgrounds in investing and you can get the help that you need. So if you want to set up a complimentary phone consultation, just go to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. And we look forward to seeing you soon. Welcome back to the Investor Coaching Show. Uh, As I promised, an article from Jason Zweig, what I learned when I stopped watching the stock market. Overreacting to the news can poison your portfolio and sour your life. Here's how to keep your investment plan on track. And uh, this is out of the Wall, uh, Wall Street Journal. Jason Zweig's a columnist there. Great, great writer. A lot of respect for his research and some of the stuff that he does. Uh, and he was working on a book. I didn't know that. That's why he hadn't been writing. He said, I just pulled a Rip Van Winkle. And maybe you should, too. I'm back at my regular post at the Wall Street Journal after being away on book leave. That long hiatus disengaged me from the daily hubbub of markets so I could frame investing ideas in a longer historical and broader psychological perspective. Like the character in the Washington Irving story who woke up after a 20-year nap, I've returned to a world both transformed and hauntingly familiar. The best part about coming back after this market sabbatical is noticing how silly so many forecasts seem to be including my own. And I'll pause there. You know, it takes a lot of courage and self-awareness to be able to admit, you know, hey, the predictions I was making 
we're silly. You know, I shouldn't even be engaging in that because that's that's his whole industry is kind of shooting some of that stuff down. The second best part is the contentment that comes from never having been remotely tempted to act on any of those forecasts. When my last regular column ran last May, the S&P 500 was already up 10.3% in 2023, right in line with the long-term average annual return of U.S. stocks. Let's just call it a year right here, I recall muttering to myself. That was the last thing I remember. From that day to this week, I tuned out the daily noise of fluctuations in stocks, bonds, commodities, and economic indicators. All of those things that people pay attention to to make their forecasts and predictions. What's that you say? The S&P sank more than 10% and the NASDAQ composite index fell more than 12% between July and October. Then in three wild weeks, they roared right back out of their declines. I never noticed. You say the yield on the 10-year treasury, 3.8% when I left, shot up to 499 in October and then promptly reversed and sank almost all the way back to 3.9 by year end. On a chart, it looks like the cross-section of a volcano. I was oblivious. When I left, investors and analysts were obsessed with guessing when and how many times the Federal Reserve would finally cut interest rates. They still are. <laughs> Here's uh-huh. my favorite line. Their guesses were largely wrong and will probably continue to be. When you don't watch the market every day, let that sink in. When you don't watch the market every day, you can finally see with unquestionable clarity that what you would have expected to happen didn't. The unexpected did. Had you told me war would break out in the Middle East in October and last for months, I would have been sad but unsurprised. Had you added that crude oil would, after a fleeting surge, finish 2023 at a lower price than the day I left, I would have been amazed. I'm not saying that the news doesn't matter or, heaven forbid, you should stop reading the journal. I'm saying that reacting to the news or even feeling you're supposed to can poison your portfolio and sour your life. If you're tempted to make drastic changes to your portfolio in response to the headlines, then you could benefit from simulating my market sabbatical. And he goes on to talk about uh, a, a book that talks about how to look, you know, talk to yourself in the future and kind of bring it back kind of an exercise and write a letter to your future self on, you know, how would I behave if certain things happened? And would I be happy if I read a year later that it didn't turn out and, you know, the election did go this way or Tesla did that, you know, all those kind of things. And so, you know, I think that's a, that's a lesson for all of us is there is noise all of the time. Daniel Kahneman has a great book out on, or Daniel Ariely, excuse me, not Kahneman, uh, has a book on noise. And, you know, the, the stuff that causes people to make a, you know, to make bad decisions in the midst of emotion, as we talk about, especially in the absence of of purpose, and you know those consequences, you can last will last for a long time if you have a concentrated position in Boeing, and they go down, and you decide to stick it out, and it never comes back. 
that's one side. That's one way of, you know, not taking action. But if you're being imprudent, getting out of an imprudent situation is a good thing to do. Once you're prudently allocated, you really just don't have to pay attention to that. And uh, I'll let you comment, but one of the most gratifying things I get from clients in, you know, in a conversation or maybe after a a meeting that we've had uh, or an investor education event is, you know, I just don't worry about it anymore. That doesn't mean it always goes up. It could still, you know, it still goes down occasionally, yep. but they just, you know, I just don't worry about it anymore. I, that's to me, the biggest compliment a client can give me. Oh, I, I totally agree with that. I, I have a client who said to me and he's been working, I've been working with him now for probably about four, 13, 14 years. Yeah. And he said, you know, before I came and went through the, your education stuff, I was looking at my statement every day. Um, I was, you know, I was looking at my account every day. I would get online. He said, and since I went through your stuff, he's like, I don't even think about it. I understand. I have peace of mind and I'm just so thankful. And he's been retired now seven or eight years, actually about 10 years. Um, I like that Jason started that with the Rip Van Winkle thing. Yeah. And the reason why I like that is one of the workshops that we teach is our foundation workshop called Dismantling the Myths of Investing. Mm-hmm. I actually used that with one of the slides talking huh. about, you know, I, I we show the thirty year hit the thirty year rolling periods. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. And I pick on the period of nineteen eighty four to twenty thirteen and I asked, you know, do you know why I use that that thirteen year period thirty year period? Why I like to, to pick on that one? You're like why? I'm like, because I started in the business in nineteen eighty four. Oh, okay. Three years later, 1987, the stock market crashed. Yeah, Black Monday. Then 1990, 1994, terrible years for the market. 2000 to 2002, a three-year bear market here in the U.S. 2008, 2011. Yeah. I said, but if I took the Rip Van Winkle approach to investing, invested January 1st, 1984, went to sleep, woke up December 31st, 2013. Uh-huh. The S&P averaged 11.1%. Yeah. $100,000 grew to over $2 million. And I didn't know all this bad stuff happened. Wow. But I like your comment about if you're properly allocated, or a better word I think is diversified. Yeah. Because if you have just the S&P 500, from 2000 to 2010, you had a negative annualized rate of return that whole period. So you need more than just the S&P. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. If you want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there. And if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more competent investors and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. The opinions voiced and information provided in this material are for general informational purposes only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what investments are appropriate for you, please consult with a financial advisor. Paul Winkler, Inc. does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation.